Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence to encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. You can learn more about us at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. I'm excited this morning to get to continue our sermon series, Core Strength. Uh, We've been going at this for seven weeks now. This is week seven, and uh, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians and considering his call to to us to put Christ at the core of who we are and what we do. Uh, My name is Casey. I serve as the operations director here at Grace City. If we haven't had the chance to meet before, please say hi before you leave today. We'd love to get to meet you. But to start off, I want to talk about someone who means a lot to me. Um, When I was in college, I had an amazing professor, somebody that I never would have imagined would impact my life the way he did. His name uh, is Reverend Dr. Brian Davenport. He is the lead pastor of Heritage Church Northwest in Vancouver, Washington, and Assemblies of God Church there. And he is an adjunct professor at Northwest University. I first had him as a student, now I get to serve on the same faculty as him. He's got a lot of degrees and titles, but he's always allowed his students to simply call him Dav. So much so that I've probably confused a ton of people in my life over time being like, oh, you know, Dav, Dav this, Dav that. And they're like, I don't know this Dav character. He's an outstanding pastor. He is a theologian. He is absolutely brilliant. He is an amazing Bible teacher and uh, theology professor. Um, if you get to spend any time with him, like it is just an absolute treasure. Every time you're walking away with him, just a richness and a depth to who he is. But what amazed me more as I got to know him is that the amazing man of God that he was in the classroom or on stage at his church was not just there. It was also when he stepped off the stage. It was when you were meeting with him one-on-one. You got to feel how much he cared about you. But then I I saw it even more when I friended him on Facebook and started to see the things that he was tagged in from people in his church, from his family, from his wife, and from his kids. It was so evident that this man was not just some face on a stage who could turn it off and turn it off, or turn it on and turn it off, but he was authentically this when he was in front of everyone, and when he was at home in the most comfortable of environments. Unfortunately, I've met plenty of other pastors and prominent leaders throughout my life who have been different. Great preachers, brilliant people who can manage teams, who can strategize well for projects or initiatives, but then you get to look behind the scenes, how they treat their wife and their kids, how they talk to their staff or maybe their assistant And all of a sudden, it just starts to rub you the wrong way. It's like you were this great man of God up on stage or this great woman of God. But then we got back to your house to talk about things. And man, that was really discouraging to see who you were off the stage. There seems to be like this gap between who they are when they're in front of everyone and it matters. And when they get home and all of a sudden the walls get to go down and they just get to be themselves. This principle goes far beyond just pastors and leaders. This is often more evident because of how public they teach or preach or publicly shepherd people. So it's really evident anytime that you meet someone and you get to see behind the scenes in their life like that. But the truth is that we all face the temptation to be this way, to put on a face when we're in front of other people 
to put up certain images or ideas and then get back to our comfortable places and just let it all go, to not let any of it matter. When no one else is around or when we are around people that maybe we've gotten too comfortable with, we permit this gap between who we say we are, how we act in certain circles, and then versus how we are when we get home and we get with our people or when we're by ourselves. And in today's passage in Colossians, Paul takes this theme of having Christ at the core and he contextualizes it to this exact purpose. Christ must be at the core even when no one else is around. Or when you're around people that are comfortable or okay or have maybe just permitted this gap in your life. Christ must be at the core even when no one else is around. And here he uses this passage to contextualize it within the family dynamics within a household. So we're going to dive into the text here, Colossians 3.18. We're going to go through 4.1. Don't ask me why they put one verse in chapter 4. Most theologians don't know why. Like Bible translators have chosen to break this up. Like most of the time you'd keep all the same thought in one section. They started a new like chapter with just one verse, even though it's Definitely a part of the one before. So um, listen to the extended cut on our podcast later this week. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, so we'll jump into the Colossians 3.18. This text often provides some uncomfortable feelings and has unfortunately been abused throughout various moments in church history. So we're going to spend some time unpacking it after we read. So if this is difficult or if there's anything that feels a little weird here, just hang around and we'll talk through it. Colossians 3.18-4 through 4, verse 1 reads... Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word says every scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. As we look at a text today that can so often poke at uncomfortable realities, whether uh, perceived or factual, we invite you, God, to change us by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, in this text we just looked at, it contains instructions for godly dynamics between three sets of relationships within the ancient Colossian home. Husbands and wives, parents slash fathers and children, masters and bond servants. If you pick this up in your own translation, maybe you're reading the NIV or the CSB, other great translations, um, you, it said slaves, not bond servants. And if we humbly approach this text, we would probably admit that there's language here that might make us a little uncomfortable. Or maybe we've come to terms with this. We were raised in some of this. This is not so foreign or awkward to us. But if we were to sit back and maybe put on somebody else's shoes or somebody else's lens or glasses, we'd say, hmm, I could see why somebody maybe feels a little uncomfortable by this passage. 
What does it mean that a wife must submit to her husband? What are the limits of said submission? Why does Paul seem to create a lane in which people can participate in owning slaves and trafficking humans? Throughout history, these texts have been wrongly applied and ripped out of their context in order to justify particularly men, dominated women, children, and other men. So let's look at each of these pairs and consider the deeper implications of what the Bible is teaching here. The temptation is to say, oh, well, this passage was written to a specific people in an ancient time, and so none of it applies to us. We don't need to take this in any way. Like, this is just written to the Colossian home. It's not something for us modern readers or listeners. Uh, But then the other hand, we might say, uh, this needs to be applied exactly like how we perceive this to be, um, that there is no gap between maybe the context and the circumstances that Paul was writing into. And I think there's got to be a balance. There's going to be some things that we're going to say, contextually, this looks different in our day and age today because our world faces different problems or same problems with different lenses or different masks. Um, But then there's going to be other truths in this that transcend a time and location. And we have to sacrifice how our cultural moment might make us feel about a particular issue or idea and say, God, this is your word. You've preserved this and you've protected this. And we know that this might be good for us to take on today. So help us. Help us, Lord. As the prophet Isaiah warned in Isaiah 5.20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So the first pair that Paul addresses is husbands and wives. He says in Colossians 3, 18 through 19, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There are two primary commands here. Uh, The first is that wives are to submit to their husbands. And the second is that husbands are to love their wives and to not be harsh with them. Now, these two short verses echo a much larger passage uh, from Ephesians 5. You can find it in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Unfortunately, because this is a sermon and not a theology lecture, I'm not going to read through the whole thing and unpack it. That that would be a whole different sermon. Um, But this is Paul's basic assertion. The design and rules given in Christian marriage are a metaphor for Christ's relationship as the head of the church. Just like Christ was appointed to be the head of the church, God has appointed husbands to be the head over their wives and over their homes. And when this is the case, the Christian marriage then gets to serve as a reflection of the gospel and of God's great love for his people. And it's important to note here that this passage is specifically speaking to a marriage relationship. This passage does not say that all women must be submissive to all men. Nor does it say that women are inferior to men on any level. This isn't creating some sort of hierarchy. It's defining certain roles and what God has established through his divine wisdom and his creative thought processing of how the family system ought to best relate. Paul doesn't contradict himself from what he says in Galatians 3.28 that all are equal in Christ. There is no hierarchy here. Just because men and women might serve in different roles, it doesn't mean that one is superior to the other in God's eyes. The term submission often trips people up. One theologian wrote, People often misunderstand submission. 
It does not indicate inferiority or involve losing one's identity or becoming a non-person. Some women fear that submission will lead to abuse or a feeling of being used. Submission does not mean blind obedience or passivity. It means giving oneself up to someone else. This doesn't mean that she is a doormat or that she doesn't have an opinion or that she has to act as some yes man and do whatever her husband commands. But she is to treat her husband with respect, with honor, and should not seek to make his life hard by constantly going about and doing her own thing and choosing her own decisions. She must work with him and cooperate with him by arranging herself under his leadership. You see in the world around us plenty of positive examples of women's empowerment. And I'm all for that. I want my wife and the women in this church, and just that we don't know the gender of our baby. It it could be a little girl. And I, I want the women in my life to be empowered, to dream big, to have larger than life aspirations and goals, to go on and do greater things than I would ever do. And I want to help create systems and processes that enable them to be able to do this to pursue their dreams, and to walk in the gifts and strengths that God has given them. But then unfortunately, there is a thin line in our culture today where women's empowerment can become anti-men. Certain attitudes and perspectives creep in, and hate and frustration, sometimes from very difficult, real circumstances that I by no means seek to diminish here, end up disrupting the order that God has created for marriage to exist within. And as the wife strives for power and freedom over her husband, things usually fall apart. I know too many friends right now that that's been their circumstances. The wife's first and foremost responsibility is to submit herself to the Lord. So there might be moments where it's appropriate for a wife to resist submission to her husband. Instances include when his leadership would violate the lordship of Jesus when his leadership would compromise the care, nurture, or protection of herself or her children, and finally, when his leadership would enable her husband's sin or abuse. When the husband is operating outside of the will of God, the wife is not expected to support and partner with him in this. And when a wife and her children find themselves in dangerous environments and situations, we encourage that they seek safety and freedom from that environment. Now, something that the ESV translation that I very intentionally chose to read, we often read in what's the new international version of the Bible. Um, it's, it's much more uh, digestible. It tries to make it, they, they call it more functional. They try to make it a little bit more readable for the modern eyes um, and, and ears. I think they, it's like an eighth grade equivalent reading level or something like that. Uh, the, they've tried to make it at, so it's a little, the ESV tries to be a little bit more literal. They want the the lines in our text here to more accurately reflect exactly where the NIV will say, we might give up some of our literalness here because we want you to understand what it means. So sometimes when you read the ESV in certain passages, you find yourself like, I gotta go do a little bit more homework on this because that seemed kind of blunt. But then other times we read the NIV and we might find out like, oh, hey, maybe they like tried a little too hard to make this readable for us and they've maybe taken away some of just the directness of the text here. I've chosen to read the ESV today in this passage, and I'll tell you why in a little bit, Um, but something that the ESV doesn't do a good job in this translation that both the New International Version or the Christian Standard Bible translations say is that wives submit yourselves to your husbands. It's the wife's responsibility to arrange themselves in this role. Husbands are not supposed to force their wife to submit. 
You don't make sure she does this. It's her responsibility to do so. And so if there's ever situations, like unfortunately throughout history, we can look back and see a lot of times in, in like a Christian-dominated culture where men became abusive when they felt like their, their woman was, was threatening their leadership. And so they would force or they would act harshly in order to try to enact obedience or submission. This text does not give us that authority. It says that it's the wife's, it's the wife's responsibility to arrange themselves in this role. Now, that's tough. It's, it's one of those things in our culture right now that, that it rubs wrong against some of the norms that we hear and what we often believe. But I don't want us to think that husband gets, the husband gets off easy here. Husbands are called to love their wives, which on the surface feels like this really kind of lame, easy, like, come on, that's, that's the best you got. You're going to love. Shouldn't the wife also love her husband? Um, but, but what makes this distinction so unique is the form of the word love that's used here. Um, there's three different forms of the word love in Greek, and you'll find them kind of all throughout the gospel accounts or throughout the New Testament. Um, but the one that's, that's here, that's often used for the love of Jesus, is the one that men are called to do. It's called agape, which is not some sort of whimsical, I've got butterflies for you because you just make me so happy kind of love. But it's a love that lays its life down for someone else. And that's why the metaphor to Jesus in the church in Ephesians 5 is so powerful and should be considered weighty for any man that wants to commit to loving a woman in this way. The responsibility of the husband is not to lord over his wife. It's not to be some executive trump card holder who can just call the shots and change everything as he wills and pleases. No, no. The husband has been called to lay down his life for his wife, to set aside his comfort, his preferences, and to have his wife's best interests at heart. And I don't think there would be a wife anywhere who would be unwilling to submit to a husband that truly lives and loves like this. Husbands, if our leadership is meant to reflect that of Christ, then we need to see our primary role as leaders is that of a servant. As the leader of my home, my call is to be the lead servant. When we talk about leadership, there's all sorts of different things that we might pull, like from authority to status to all these kinds of things. But when you look at the life of Jesus, the most core identity as him as a leader was that he was a servant. He put others first, so much so that he was willing to lay down his life for them. Husbands, that is your call. This is not some whimsical, love her because your temptation is not to. It's, hey, you lay down your life for this woman. You set aside your preferences, your comfort, and your care, and you love her and lay down your life with everything that you have. The husband's role is not to boss, but to bless. Additionally, the husband is called specifically here uh, not to be harsh with his wife. He's to give her space, to be different, to have opinions and preferences. He's not to be hard-hearted or bitter towards her, but to live like Jesus did with compassion and kindness. And unfortunately, uh, many husbands are not too good at this one. Many men blame a lack of emotional availability or just even like a general kindness sometimes due to the long day that they've had or how much weight they feel like they're carrying on their shoulders. And there's just no justification to being harsh with your wife. 
no matter how tough your day was, how underappreciated you may feel in any moment, or how much work it takes you to get to that point where you can exist with compassion and kindness, it's your responsibility to deal lovingly with her in this way. If I can be a little bit more pointed for a second, um, there are too many wives holding on to painful experiences and patterns in their marriages because they've given up believing that their husband actually cares enough to hear them and to change those patterns. They used to tell their husband about something that was difficult, something that um, was needing addressed, but after weeks, months, or years of their husband being hard-hearted and resistant to change, they've stopped talking about their needs and desires altogether. One can only bring up something for so long before you realize it's pointless. Why say anything? It's not like this is time, it's just going to change him. Shame on us who say we love our wives and meanwhile have built up such walls that we've kept ourselves from loving and caring for them like we're called to. Some of us need to ask the Lord to help us with emotional availability and with selflessness. We might need to assess the systems and schedules in our lives that contribute to our difficult relational dynamics. And I think it's more than appropriate to sit down and ask your wife on a routine basis, how can I love you better? In prep for this sermon, um, in order to try my best not to be a hypocrite, um, I did this with my wife. I said, hey, I'm going up and I'm preaching on something, um, but I I don't want to preach this without having talked to you about it too. And I want you to know even afterwards. Maybe, maybe you don't think of it right now. Um, she did, by the way. She, she had something. Um, but I, I said, I don't want to come up here and, and try to preach this without, without having had this conversation with you two. And she, she had something. And she said, you know, you, you often tell me that you're willing to help me with things. I need a couple chores done or I need something moved upstairs you tell me that at the beginning of the day or maybe before a weekend when we know we're going to be around a lot. But then when it comes time, you have the worst attitude sometimes. I feel like the biggest inconvenience asking you to actually do what you said you would help me with. And she's pregnant right now. There's a lot of things she can't do at our house right now. She can't lift certain boxes as Christmas gifts and baby gifts and all these things are rolling through. Like She needs me to help right now. But I think even more, she needs me to have a better attitude. She needs me to actually be like lovingly and willing to step in and serve these things. And as soon as she started opening up about these things, I just felt so convicted. And it was because this humble approach where I said, I'm not coming into this defensive, ready to fight you. I said, how, how can I love you better this week? And as she started to even say it, I just felt like, like the Holy Spirit was reminding me of instances even in the last few days where I've just like been such a jerk when she's needed my help with something and I've, I have made her feel like an inconvenience. I've not been willing to own up to what I said. There's a lot of us husbands I think need to have that question this week. How can I love you better? The second relational pair that we see here in Colossians 3 is uh, between a parent or father it kind of turns to, and their children. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. 
With Christ at the core, the child's responsibility is to obey their parents in all things. Notice there's a significant difference in word choice in the commands here between what wives were commanded to do and what children are. Submission is almost more this like vague sense of general support and union and partnership. I'm going to work with you. I'm not going to work against you. I'm not going to try to usurp you. I'm going to work with you here. That might give room for disagreements. It might give room for different perspectives or to say, hey, I think we should maybe do this that way instead. But with children, the command is much more direct. It's much more pointed. Obey. It has like a, a, a feeling of like very specific commands that a child is supposed to obey when their parent commands them. It doesn't give some of the same flexibility that the idea of submission might have. Even Jesus Christ, as a child, submitted to the leadership of his parents. So if even Jesus did this, so should our children who claim to follow him. They should not be rebellious, deceitful, or provoking, but should seek to honor and obey their parents' rules and commands. Again, the husband or fathers dealt with another command you're going to see all throughout this passage. Uh, for everyone that gets poked out a little bit uncomfortably here, the, the man of the house gets uh, poked at the most. He says that if Christ is at the core, the husband or the father is not to provoke, or as another translation puts it, embitter their children. Parents should not pick at or tease in seriousness, nag or belittle their children, because if we do, Paul says in verse 21, they will give up. They will lose heart, believing that they can't make you happy and obey all the rules that you've tried to put in front of them. And unfortunately, this is more common than we'd like to admit. Parents will often try to put on a nice face in front of other people, how they talk about what they're excited about, what they're proud of that their kid's doing, or they'll treat them differently. They'll give them honor and a spotlight. And then they get home. And they're mean. They're impatient. They provoke them. They're reactive. And if Christ is at the core, we ought to take just as seriously how we deal with our children in private as we do in public. The third and final relationship dealt with in this section is between masters and bondservants. Your translation might say slaves. In Bible translating, there's often a difficult task in looking back on ancient systems and institutions and structures and then having to translate them in words that make sense to maybe what our modern ones look like. This is the case with the Hebrew, Hebrew word abed and the Greek word doulos, which are often rendered as slave throughout many Bible translations. Depending on the context, however, these terms actually cover a range of relationships that require a range of renderings. So it might be slave, um, but it also could be bondservant or servant. Additionally, the word slave often holds association to what we're most familiar with in our culture about the dehumanizing and terrible things that happened in 19th century America. But slavery in the ancient world was not always race-related, like slavery we are familiar with here. In the Old Testament of the Bible, um, that's kind of the first half. It's more than half, but it's you know where they kind of break it in the middle. One might enter slavery either voluntarily, maybe to escape poverty or to pay off a debt, uh, or involuntarily, 
by birth, maybe you were captured and battled, maybe you wronged someone severely and so you were judicially assigned to serve as a slave. And the Mosaic law, which was the law that governed and guided God's people before Jesus came and fulfilled it and offered the new covenant, the Mosaic law guaranteed protection for those in servitude, including specific provisions for release from slavery. In the New Testament, the Greek word doulos is often best described as a bondservant, someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve a master for seven years, unless you served in the house of the Caesar, which was typically a 14-year contract. When this contract expired, the person was freed, they were given their wage that had been saved for them, and was officially declared a freed man. Scholars estimate, this blew my mind, that somewhere between 25 to 33% of citizens in Colossae were in these bond-servant systems and relationships. It was so incredibly relevant and prevalent in Paul's time in society, that's kind of why it gets addressed in here. This was in most homes. Something like, we read this today, and we're like, this feels so foreign, so ancient, so awkward. Back then, this was incredibly common, not just in Colossae, but in the entire Roman world. So it was incredibly appropriate to address this. And this isn't the only time that uh, Paul would do this for actually this specific church. If you've ever read another letter in the New Testament, Philemon, well, Philemon was a church leader and host in Colossae. Um, I learned that this week. That was a big deal to me. I was pretty excited. And I have like a seminary degree and stuff. And there's always something more to learn, I promise. Like no matter how many times you feel like you've read a passage or studied something, like there's always something more to learn. Um, We'll talk more about Philemon here in a little bit. But this is so incredibly common in the ancient world and specifically in Colossae that it makes sense that it was something that he would need to address and talk about. And while we're on the topic of slavery, it's worth considering the Bible's relationship with this institution altogether. Because you might have heard some things on TikTok or YouTube or different kinds of things um, that are inaccurate, are often uh, very, like, based off one verse that's ripped completely out of its context. And so we're going to not do full justice that a topic like this deserves. But um, Pastor Adam Mabry is a leader and theologian in our church movement. He's come up with um, these kind of five distinctives. Um, and observations for us to take away about slavery and the Bible. He says first that the family system is ordained by God from creation, but slavery is not. The relationship between husbands, wives, and children are all rooted in the creative activity and wisdom of God in creation. Slavery, on the other hand, was a system and institution created by broken, fallen humanity. The Bible gives instructions for managing it, but never endorses it, And the evil of trafficking humans is undermined all throughout the New Testament, especially. Second, slavery was enormous, as we just kind of noted. Scholars estimate, uh, he says one-third of the city of Colossae, I read anywhere from 25% to 33% uh, of Colossae, and the Roman world in general were slaves. It was so much a part of the day um, that the institution itself would probably not even hit the moral radar for the Christians like uh, maybe some of our modern-day economic systems, that we don't even understand maybe how oppressive or corrupt certain aspects or elements might be. It's just like, this is what we have. We don't even recognize maybe how broken and corrupt something could actually be. That's often how slavery was in the ancient world because of how big and prevalent it was. 
Third, as noted earlier, slavery was not racial. While some slavery was forced in the ancient world through war mostly, um, much of it was voluntary. It was not like the race-based slavery of the southern United States in the 19th century. And in the ancient world, slaves came from all different kinds of ethnic groups, um, which I've got another point on that here in a moment. Uh, Fourth, Paul encourages freedom from slavery. Elsewhere in Paul's letter, Paul encourages slaves to become free if they're able to and discourages free men from becoming slaves. You can look at 1 Corinthians 7 for an example of that. In other words, he recognizes that the state of slavery, especially due to financial duress, should be avoided whenever possible. And fifth and finally, the Bible undermines this institution altogether. Some ask, you know, why wouldn't the Bible simply say, slaves of the world, unite in revolution? A few reasons to answer that question. First, there was almost no solidarity amongst slaves because they didn't come from the same ethnic backgrounds. Because they were so diverse, because they all spoke different languages and came from different areas, there was no way for them to come together and to unite. Second, the New Testament Christians were a tiny, persecuted religious group living in an authoritarian empire. Such an outright demand probably wouldn't bring about the end of slavery. What the Bible does do is undermine the system altogether by simultaneously demanding that slaves act like Christians, not revolutionaries. This reflects the state of the already but not yet nature of the kingdom of God. A Christian slave would already be freed in Christ, part of the kingdom of God, welcomed in as a member of the church, but he would not yet be walking in the full freedom that he would one day enjoy at the end of the age. Yet Christian slave owners were commanded also to treat their slaves as brothers, like in Paul's letter to Philemon. So Paul doesn't have any big proclamation against slavery. That's one of the things that people don't like about the Bible, um, is that there's no like outright claim to go pull out and say, look, the Bible says this is a corrupt, terrible system. Um, so a lot of people don't like that. But I would argue, and many other theologians would argue, that Paul's strategy is probably a bit more effective. Remember, he's from this tiny persecuted group. His voice is just nothing in this crowd, in this massive empire that is the Roman world. And so what we read about in Paul's letter to Philemon is that he aims for the heart. Not just for the institution, not just for the systems, but he aims for the heart. Because if he knows if he can change the heart, the outcome of that is going to be long-term changed systems. So in Philemon, to summarize, there's a bondservant who's run away from his master. His name is Onesimus, and Philemon is the master. Paul tells this servant that he should go back home and serve under his master. But he sends him with a letter, a letter to Philemon that commands him to welcome Onesimus back like a brother. He says your relationship will no longer function like it did before. You must treat him better like a brother. And I love, like, Paul kind of uses some of his, like, apostle status to kind of leverage. He's like, I know you're going to do this. I I think if the apostle Paul is writing any of us, like, a letter direct, we'd be like, okay, this is probably an important moment here. Um, Paul says near the end of the letter, I'm confident that you're going to do this and even more than what I've asked you to do. And I think it's because he knew 
that if Paul tells him, welcome him back as a brother, that he's not going to be able to go on existing in this kind of relationship, in this kind of system. And we don't know that's for sure what happened with Onesimus and Philemon, but we can see that that's exactly what happened in the Roman world. The Roman world embraced Christianity in about uh, AD 300, 321. Um, and what happens is, over time, as more and more people in, the, uh, in their empire become Christians, something begins to change. All of a sudden, laws start to change. You can't brand your bondservants anymore. Um, you don't have that kind of right over them anymore. Certain protections start to come into place. And slowly but surely, over time, by 600s, we see slavery abolished altogether. It was not an overnight change, but they changed the heart of a nation, of an empire that had dominated the world that was built by the hands of slaves. And the gospel moved through and changed something because the truth aimed for the heart and the systems and structures followed afterwards. Just like the bondservant who's... Uh, so, so when we think about this, you, you often hear a lot of people say, when you look at this passage, this is a lot like our employer uh, employee relationship dynamics. And that's kind of true. There's a lot of really great principles for us to take away from this, um, but it is not a perfect one-to-one -one comparison. Um, so when we're thinking about contextualizing a passage like this, um, we, we have to see through this lens of like these slaves were not guaranteed certain rights. This is well before 300 AD when things started to change. Um, there were a lot of protections not guaranteed to people in these systems and relationships. And so though there are a lot of great principles that I think we should take from and apply in this passage, it is not a perfect or one-to-one -one comparison by any means. I just want to say that before we kind of dive into the implications of what this passage means for us today. Just like the bondservant, those who are employees should, in, uh, should obey the commands of their employers. Uh, I love what Paul says in verse 22. He says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Obey and honor your employers when no one else is watching you. Not just when it gets you favor or recognition, but especially when you are alone in your office or when your supervisor is out for the day. I know that the pandemic has enabled many of us to get to work from home. Um, maybe not full-time, but at least partially. And for a stretch there, a lot of us were still. And um, one of the things that I, I've probably said, but I've also heard it said in ways that kind of cracks me up, is people are like, oh, I love the flexibility that comes with working from home. I'm like, flexibility from not doing your job? You mean like watching YouTube instead of like doing your tasks or taking care of chores and, and all these different kinds of things, like that flexibility is probably a good thing. I think a lot of us could use that in a way that's really beneficial and good. But then how many of us maybe have crossed the line on what is integrity for working hard, for honoring when no one's looking, for filling out your time card with hours that you said will work, but you know you were just goofing around 
you weren't actually saying that, or maybe you just threw on an extra half hour because I need to make this look good. We need to have integrity when no one else is looking. Paul says we combat this tendency, as he says in verse 23, by recognizing that whatever we do is ultimately for the Lord and not just for the human that cuts the check every two weeks. It doesn't matter if you're a truck driver, a medical professional, a teacher, a gas station attendant. You work hard and you work with integrity because it honors God first and foremost. When you hear about your coworkers who are cutting corners or putting on a face in front of the boss, you avoid these tendencies because you know that you don't just work to please them. You work to please the Lord. You seek to honor him in everything that you do. Verse 25 says that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Paul recognizes that one of the temptations for a bondservant and for us uh, employees in today's world is to try and rebel against our master or, or our employer when there is wrongdoing. The fact is, it's a human tendency for a lot of circumstances uh, where we want to get retribution for maybe where we've been wrong. And Paul reminds them of a Christian virtue that's throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that vengeance is the Lord's, not yours. You don't lead revolts. You don't sabotage projects or workflows. You don't stir up disunity or gossip with your coworkers. In faith, you trust that God will provide justice. Thankfully, in our modern context, we do have a lot more protections. We do have some more systems where we can report issues, where we can report problems, where we can talk to people and say, hey, this feels a little fair, or hey, that particular situation wasn't right. But especially these bond servants in this passage, they weren't so lucky. But we should also recognize the destructive paths that we might choose when we feel we've been wronged in the workplace, and we should flee from them. Finally, the master is reminded that they ought to lead justly and fairly. Because even if you own your own company and you have all the power over those who work under you, you submit to a master in heaven and you're called to imitate him in how you lead and love your employees. You don't manipulate or take advantage of or leverage corrupt systems to avoid caring for them or providing for them how you should. You go above and beyond to treat them right. There's nothing sadder to me than meeting like a corrupt businessman or woman who claims to be a follower of Jesus. It's so sad and heartbreaking because God has blessed you with so many resources, with so many opportunities to care and provide for people. And it's absolutely heartbreaking to hear people leverage systems and practices of the world when we've been called to love generously and kindly like our Father in Heaven does. We must go above and beyond. The reality of this passage is that everyone here in the home or workplace has been challenged to fight off what their sinful nature tells them about what norms should be in place. The wife who is tempted to go her own way and make her own decisions. The husband who is tempted to be selfish, unavailable, and harsh. The child who is tempted to use their immature wisdom. The father who is tempted to be impatient, to lack compassion, to belittle his children. The employee who is tempted to slack off when no one's watching the employer who's tempted to take advantage of his employees, if Christ is at the core, we all submit to him by following Christ's example and walking in what God has called right and good. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world of counterfeits. Christians or not, 
there are so many examples of people who say they live one way, but then get back home, get back away from people, and live a completely different way. I urge you, take Christ home with you today and let him rule over it. Don't just be about it when people are watching. Let Christ reign over every environment that you live and dwell within. Worship team, you can come on up. The great news for all of us is that the Holy Spirit is available to make us into the people that God has called us to be. He can change your desires. He can change your intentions and your direction. The gap between who you are in public and who you are in private doesn't have to be so wide. It can start to shrink today by the power of the Holy Spirit. There might be attitudes that God wants to change in you today. There might be habits or patterns that God wants to rewrite in your life, and he's available to do so. The other thing that can stir up in a message like this is um, a healthy bit of like conviction, um, a bit of sadness and disappointment. Do you recognize maybe areas that uh, you've, you've fallen short in this? And I just want to encourage you that you have a compassionate and loving Father who is so excited today to start things fresh. The Bible says that God's mercies are new each and every day. He separates your sin as far as the east is from the west. And you wake up today with no condemnation, with no shame, nothing to be disappointed in, but everything to look forward to, to believe that God can and will do this in you if you humbly approach him and ask you to help. All of these relationships, all of these dynamics that try to draw us apart from who God has made us to be, he's available to help us today. So whether it's in your marital or parental relationship or how you interact with your workplace, your employees, your employers, if you follow Christ and you want to see change, please pray with me in faith that the Holy Spirit can do something about it. God, we are so desperate for your power. Lord, there's so many things that I know many of us in this room recognize our flaws, recognize our faults in our parenting, in our marriages, in our work environments. Sometimes these things can feel so difficult to overcome. Holy Spirit, we need you. Be our helper. Lift our feet. Get us moving in the direction. God, sanctify us. Make us more like you. I thank you, God, that this is a compassionate call. You are not sitting there condemning us by this, but your conviction is supposed to lead us to change. So God, I pray today that you would help us desperately lean on you for all of the relational dynamics in our life, for all of the moments when people are or aren't watching. Holy Spirit, help us. God, we don't want to just say we have Christ at our core, but we want to live like it. And you and your Holy Spirit are the key to that being a reality in us today. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.